We are continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Galatians chapter 4. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, and I'm thrilled that I can say this again, if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, it's on page 1238, Galatians chapter 4. Now, in last, as you're turning there, in last week's passage, we, uh, Paul, we were looking as Paul turned from a more strictly theological discourse to more of a personal appeal to the Galatians based on their knowledge of him, of his care for them, and comparing that with the, uh, the actions and the desires of the false teachers, of the, the, the Judaizers who were plaguing them. Now this week he's going to take that theme a step further and weave those two ideas, the theological with the personal, together. That said, this is arguably the most difficult passage in the New Testament. This is a very difficult passage for us to dig through, so as much as we need the Holy Spirit every week and always, we especially need Him this week. So if you're able, please stand while I pray and remain standing as I read from Galatians 4. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, faithful Father, Holy Spirit, we need your insight, we need your grace, we need your spirit with us now. We come to your word because in it we find you, we find your truth, we find life. And yet, especially this morning, if you do not restrain us, we will not understand. If you do not enlighten us, we will misunderstand, we will misinterpret what's going on in this passage. And so, Father, we pray that you would send us your Spirit to give us your truth, that we might see you clearly in this, your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Said, so I'm reading from Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. This is God's Word. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the barren one will be more than those of the one who still has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted he who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. In 1927, Cecil B. DeMille cast British-born actor H.B. Warner as Jesus in the famous silent film, though probably not real well known anymore, uh, King of Kings. 
Warner, who 19 years later would play the druggist in It's a Wonderful Life, was kept on a very short leash during the filming of King of Kings. DeMille was concerned that any behavior at all by that lead actor that was deemed inconsistent with the image of Christ would result in negative publicity for the film. And as a result, DeMille enforced strict measures to ensure that Warner kept up a good Jesus image, or at least what Cecil DeMille thought was a good Jesus image. Both Warner and his co-star Dorothy Cumming, who played Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to sign agreements that barred them for five years after the end of this film from appearing in any film role that might compromise their wholly on-screen reputation. During the filming, Warner was driven to and from the set in a car with the blinds drawn. He wore a black veil as he was delivered to the set. DeMille separated Warner from all the other cast members, even forcing him to eat alone every day. Warner couldn't play cards. He couldn't go to ball games. He couldn't ride in a convertible. He couldn't go swimming. Unfortunately, that regimen of rules, regulations, didn't make Warner more holy. Instead, all the pressure to be more Christ-like without having the power of Jesus, or even an understanding of the forgiveness that Jesus provides, all of those rules and regulations seemed to drive Warner over the edge. During the production of King of Kings, rather than act more like Jesus, Warner relapsed into his addiction to alcohol. More strict adherence to the rules does not make for more holiness. Now, as I said earlier, our passage this morning is arguably at least the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament for us to understand, at least in part because of what Paul doesn't say in the passage. If we take this passage just plainly, simply on face value, we will be left with some pretty significant questions. But as is usually the case, historical context, immediate literary context, the, the parts of Scripture that come right around this, uh, and, and even a broad familiarity with Scripture as a whole can help point us in the right direction, can help maybe clear up some of the confusion that we have from this specific passage. Now, let me say this right up front. Paul explicitly uses an allegorical interpretation of, the, of an Old Testament passage here. And that, that might not be a familiar term to you. Uh, generally speaking, allegory in, in non-biblical discussion, just in literary conversation, allegory is a short poem or picture or story that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a, mor typically a moral or political meaning. Basically, when you read or hear an allegory, every element of the story, every character, every location, every event, every everything, stand for something else. Think of the probably the most classic example of an allegory in modern times, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Every character stands for something other than the character, that, that event in the story. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. He wrote it to be an allegory and a pretty blunt one too. Uh, every event, every location stands for some aspect of the Christian's life or journey toward heaven toward life with God. 
it's right and good that we interpret it in that way because that's the way John Bunyan intended it for us to understand it. The problem comes when we begin to use that same methodology, allegorical interpretation, and apply it to a non-allegorical passage as if it were an allegory. Now, why do I belabor that point? Generally speaking, the only place in God's Word that you find allegory is in the parables. That's it. Remember, Jesus would say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then we get a story that has nothing to do with a kingdom or anything else. It's, you know, a farmer planting seed, or two sons, and one of whom ran off and squandered all his money, whatever. On the surface of them, these are not about God's kingdom, and yet Jesus has said the kingdom of heaven is like this story in some way. And so we see that there's a connection, a parable, a metaphorical or allegorical connection between the characters in these stories and the point that Jesus is making about the kingdom of heaven. The prodigal son, the lost sheep, the parable of the soils, these are familiar stories that we recognize and that we recognize right away are not really about a profligate son or a sheep or dirt. Outside of Jesus' parables and the very few other parables that you find in Scripture, like Nathan's story to David about the man who stole a sheep, the rich man who stole a sheep from the poor man, Outside of those parables, there is perhaps no allegory in all of Scripture at all. And yet, in the Middle Ages, following rabbinic practice that had gone back even before the time of Jesus, in the Middle Ages it became the standard to read every story in the Bible allegorically. It was simply understood that there was multiple layers of meaning. You had the surface layer, which was what the Word said, and then there was these multiple, almost an infinite number of allegorical meanings underneath the surface level. And you, those who were truly spiritual were the ones who could find, invent, find, extra layers underneath. That was the standard understanding. And let's be honest, it does, it's not nearly as common, and we don't call it that anymore, but that kind of thing still happens. Let me give you an example. When you read that David killed Goliath, that means you can face your greatest fears in Christ and win the day. Now, it may be true that in Christ you can face your greatest fears and win the day, but that's not what that passage says. That passage is about a specific event in the history of Israel. Since the Reformation, allegorical readings of Scripture have been recognized as little better than a way to read into Scripture whatever I want to be there. Now, it is theoretically possible, at least, to do an allegorical interpretation without it just being arbitrary and reading onto Scripture. But historically speaking, that's functionally impossible to avoid in reality. As you're reading your Bible, Unless the genre of the passage of Scripture, like the parables, specifically demand, specifically call for that method of interpretation, here's the rule. Always avoid reading God's Word allegorically. You will rapidly run aground theologically. Now, I make a big deal out of that because it's a big deal. And then we get to Galatians 4.24. Paul says, now, this may be interpreted allegorically. What? 
What you doing, Paul? Now, Paul refers to the Old Testament Scriptures a lot in his letters, right? I mean, it's just laced all through there. But as far as I know, this is the only place in all of his letters that we have, this is the only place that he uses an allegorical interpretation. So what is going on? Now, on the one hand, as I said, this was common rabbinic practice for, had been for centuries, uh, even before Jesus. And Paul had been trained in the Harvard of rabbinical schools. He was trained by Gamaliel in the rabbinical school of Gamaliel. He had this tool in his bag. But why here and nowhere else? It's not explicitly stated in our passage because it would have been obvious to the Galatians. Paul didn't need to tell them this. But it seems most likely that Paul's actually responding here to an allegorical argument put forward by the Judaizers, by the false teachers. This story, Abraham and his sons, uh, his sons, one by Hagar, the other by Sarah, this was a very familiar story. It was super common for uh, teachers to come back to this story and use it in many ways. We have lots of examples of this from the intertestamental time and from the 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 first century Judaistic writings and things like that. We have lots of examples. It's very familiar territory. It seems likely that the false teachers had said something along these lines. When God first made all his covenant promises, he said that they were for Abraham alone and for his heirs. We, the Jews, are heirs of Abraham because we are his direct descendants through the child of promise, Isaac. You, as Gentiles, at best, are descended from Ishmael, the illegitimate son, and therefore excluded from receiving God's promises. But in God's mercy, you can receive his promise too. All you have to do is to become a legitimate child of Abraham, and we've even got a process for you. Be circumcised, and you will then be adopted into Abraham's family, and you will be an heir and be able to receive the promise of God. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes this argument from the Judaizers and turns it on its head, arguing that, in fact, they were the illegitimate sons descended from Ishmael. The sons of Ishmael, because they were rejecting God's grace in favor of a righteousness that was theirs, they claimed, by works. While the Galatian Christians, Gentiles though they were, were the true heirs of Abraham, the true sons of Isaac, because they received God's grace as Abraham had by faith, by faith alone, and not by works. And Paul addresses this in three steps, obviously. There's the historical reality of the story, the allegorical interpretation, and then a bit of practical application. First, he sets this whole discussion up with a bit of wordplay in, in his opening question. Law there can be, can be used a few different ways. It can either mean strictly the actual commands and prohibitions that God issued, or it can also mean the law as in the five books of Moses, the books that the lawgiver wrote, the Pentateuch, uh, what was called in that day the Torah. Uh, you may have heard that term. It's still in use. Um, so Paul says, you who want to be under the law, the legal codes, have you not listened to the law? That is the historical narrative into which God gave those codes. Are you not paying attention to the full context of God's word? 
Or are you just focusing on the to-do list? That you have completely misunderstood the point of the legal codes is revealed by the ways that you've ignored the context so that you can apply those codes pretty much any way you want to. So that you can apply those codes in the way that you have. As much as this is a critique of the Galatians, most, maybe all of them, are from a Gentile background and wouldn't have really known much about those legal codes at all. They were deceived by these false teachers. It's a far stronger critique of the teachers, the false teachers, the Judaizers, who absolutely should have known better. But Paul gives a very brief rundown of this story, from, and this is from, if you want to look it up later, it's from Genesis 16, 17, and 21. It's kind of where we find this historical account. Paul gives a very brief summary to set up what comes next. Abraham had two sons, one by the flesh, by the ordinary means, one by the promise. And though we can blow past that quickly, this is, you know, it's a story that we're still relatively familiar with. We can get past it real quickly. It's important to see how Paul addresses the difference between these two Sons. Ishmael was the result, we might say, of the attitude, God helps those who help themselves. Abraham was in his 80s. Sarah was close to it. She's probably in her late 70s at that point. They're looking around. They don't have any children. There's no way that they could imagine that God could get this whole plan of descendants going, so let's help him out. We'll figure out, we'll, we'll get it started, get the ball rolling, and then God can take over from there. So they took matters into their own hands, so to speak. And in the ordinary course of events, Hagar got pregnant, according to the flesh. But then, 13 or so years later, God stepped in and did what he'd always planned to do, what he'd promised to do and Sarah got pregnant now this also happened in the expected biological manner Isaac was in that sense genuinely Abraham's son but in the larger picture Isaac was the child not of the flesh but of the promise the promise given by God despite Sarah being well past the age of childbearing she was 90 when Isaac was born and that distinction will prove to be the key factor for Paul in this discussion. Are you a child of the flesh or are you a child of the promise? But then he wades into the interpretation and, he st- and it starts getting hard. It starts getting challenging for us. First, as I said earlier, unless the text specifically calls for it, don't run to an allegorical interpretation. It's a, a recipe for disaster. On the other hand, if it should happen to pass that you're writing a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you do what the Spirit says. In other words, you don't, but trust that Paul here uh, has, is doing it because he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only hard thing here. There is a, he lays out a, a dualistic view of God's work in the world. The two women, Hagar and Sarah, the two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, corresponding to the two covenants represented by two mountains, Mount Sinai on the one hand and by implication Mount Zion on the other. The two Jerusalems, the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. Ultimately, the two sets of results, slavery and freedom, persecuting versus being persecuted. We can follow the line of reasoning 
thus far pretty well. But there are some aspects of this that get kind of confusing. Paul rightly says that there are two covenants. A covenant that is defined by righteousness, earned by merit, by works. And a covenant that is defined by grace. Where this gets hard is that Paul associates the covenant of works with Moses, with Mount Sinai, with the law. On the surface, at least, that seems to make some sense. After all, God gave Israel the law through Moses. The books of Moses contain lots of commands for all sorts of things to do and not to do. Lots of penalties for failing to keep the commands. And even some blessings for keeping the commands. Right? This is the, kind of the standard understanding of the law of Moses. Do these things and you will live. Don't do them and you will die. This is kind of how we approach the law. Obviously, that's the covenant of works, except that it isn't. The fundamental nature of what God gave to Moses at Sinai in an absolute sense is grace. The functioning of grace was not an additive, was not a superlative, was not a little bit of extra spice added on the top. It was the fundamental nature and character of the, the, the law as given to Moses. We don't much think of it that way because there are a lot of regulations. We see a long list of do's and don'ts and we naturally default to keep these to earn favor from God. The character of God forms the core of the law, the foundation on which it's built. We call that the moral law, primarily summarized in the Ten Commandments. As we get into chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, we'll see that in a sense at least, those, that moral law, that character of God still applies and controls our lives, as it should. Because it is the character of God simply written down. God doesn't change, so it was the same before the fall, it was the same after the fall but before Jesus came, it was the same now after Jesus has come but before he returns, it will be the same after Jesus comes back. The character of God doesn't change. <coughs> Excuse me. But the majority, by far, of the law of Moses, the Mosaic Code, the majority dealt with the sacrificial system. At its core, a system by which sin was shown to be wiped away or atoned for by the bloody sacrifice of a substitute. Substitutionary atonement is baked into the law of Moses in a way that is utterly inextricable. Now, obviously, Hebrews spends quite a lot of time talking about Uh, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of sheep and doves and whatever else, all of those Old Testament sacrificial system couldn't actually wipe away sin. The whole point was to point forward to the one true sacrifice that would actually wipe away sin, that would actually cleanse God's people from their sin. As I say, Hebrews spends lots of time explaining that point, that the whole goal of the sacrificial system and the law was to point forward to Christ. To find, in in an absolute sense, the the law of Moses is not a framework for works righteousness. It was understood to be such, as it is understood to be such today in many places. But in an absolute sense, that's not what was going on there. To find an actual covenant of works, we have to go back before the fall, where God required from Adam perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. Do this that I command you perfectly without ever failing even a little bit. Personally, do it yourself. No one can do it for you. And perpetually, you must always and forever be perfect in this. 
And if you do, you will live. If you fail, even a little, even once, even slightly, if you fail, you will die. That's the covenant of works. There's no grace in it. And Adam failed. But then in Genesis 3, suddenly there's a new game in town. The whole rest, suddenly they will be given life not because they earn it, but because someone else earned it for them. And the whole rest of God's word is the record of God progressively revealing more and more of the covenant of grace. The plan for a redeemer for the people of God. It reached its fullest and most complete revelation in the person of Jesus. Even the law of Moses, legal code though it is, even the law of Moses is an aspect of the covenant of grace. So what's Paul doing talking about Sinai and Moses and the law being the covenant of works? The thing is, God's people didn't understand then and still don't. God's people, for pretty much the entire time that they had the law, treated it as if keeping the law would earn them favor from God, would, was a form of works righteousness, would earn them a place with God that grace paradoxically could be earned, could be merited. Before we jump up and down on them for being so foolish, we do it too. We think forgiveness and mercy are for those who have done something to earn them. Well, he's not that bad. You know, he, yeah, he made a mistake here in this one area, but he's a pretty good guy elsewhere, so we should give him forgiveness. We should, we should go easy on him. We think forgiveness and mercy are for those who have done something to earn them, as if our other goodness somehow makes giving grace in this one area more acceptable. His other righteousness earns him grace for this failure, for this mistake. We do it especially when we pray, Lord, I've done fill in the blank for you. Please do this thing for me. I've earned merit from you. Apply it and give me this thing that I want. But grace that is earned is not grace. Mercy that is merited is not mercy. It is wages. If you earn it, if you merit it, it's your wages that can be demanded. We cannot come to God demanding our wages for who is given to the Lord that they might demand repayment from Him. It is a foolish thought, but one that is incredibly prevalent in every age, in every epoch of human history, and even today, it is incredibly prevalent. For the false teachers in Galatia, they believed that grace and favor could be earned on the basis of a combination of biological descent from Abraham and the keeping of the law of Moses. This was the framework on which the Judaizers were building their understanding of Christ and his work. So while Paul could have addressed their failure to understand anything that God had done in all of history what God was actually doing in his interactions with Israel. He does that plenty of other places, most clearly in Romans, I think. Here, he simply uses their own false understandings and upends them. You think you're the children of Isaac. You think you will inherit the promise on the basis of biological descent. You invite these Gentile believers to go through an adoption ritual so that they can become legitimate sons 
of Abraham by blood. You think these things. But Paul says, regardless of biological intent, uh, descent, those who live like a slave are the sons of the slave woman. Those who are trying to earn favor by the works of the flesh are children of Ishmael, the child of the flesh. Ishmael was the son born by trusting that God helps those who help themselves. If your faith is in that covenantal structure, that God helps you when you help yourself, then you are identified with Ishmael regardless of your biological pedigree. You are a slave with no part in the promise of God, no part in the inheritance of God, and no hope in Christ. If your hope is, I can earn favor with God by my actions, you have no part in Christ. On the other hand, as Paul had taught at the end of chapter 3, if you have the faith that Abraham had, trusting that God would do what he said he would do, believing that he will give you favor wholly based on the merit of another and not on your own merit, that he will wipe away your sin by the bloody sacrifice of another, then you are the child of freedom, the child of the promise, regardless of your biological lack of pedigree. Like Isaac, you are the children of promise, trusting in the promise of God to give you all that is necessary for life and godliness. Rest in His work, for it is sufficient. You can't add anything to it. You can only take away from it by your working. And yet, brothers and sisters, there is a twofold response to that reality. Not a striving after God's favor, not a working to earn His favor. We've just pretty clearly shown that that's not the way to go. But a response to the unmerited favor He has already bestowed on us. Internally, in our relationship with God, verse 30, we must cast out the slave woman and her son. Now, in the historical account, of course, this was Sarah's jealous response uh, after Isaac's birth, God allowed it, but at the same time, he also blessed Hagar and Ishmael uh, on Abraham's account, though, of course, not savingly. In our lives, in our relationship with Christ, we must cast out the mindset in ourselves of slavish obedience so as to earn favor. We must cast out the mindset of works righteousness that says, I can earn from God what I need. The idea, the mindset that makes lists of all the things that a true Christian must do to be considered a Christian at all. Must do to be considered a Christian at all. All the things that no true Christian would ever do. We must destroy the response in us to God's grace that says, this is great, now how can I repay you? That attitude is antithetical to the grace of Christ. Oil and water ain't even in it. The two approaches are mutually exclusive, one necessarily destroying the other. So that's the first aspect of response. But the other aspect, the other response is an external one. That is what we receive and expect to receive 
from the world around us. As we live out our freedom in Christ, from freedom from bondage, freedom uh, from slavery to works righteousness, those who are still enslaved will hate us and will seek with everything in them to drive us back into conformity with their ideas, with that works righteousness mindset. Just as Ishmael mocked Isaac, just as the sons of Ishmael in Jesus' day, the Pharisees crucified the true son of the promise, so those who are Ishmael's sons today, the religious leaders who preach works righteousness in Christ's name, the false teachers who proclaim a gospel of health and wealth, if you will just believe the right things, the false prophets who take the name of Christ but know nothing of him, the sons of slavery today, as they always have, will seek to destroy the sons of the promise. Expect it. Doesn't speak at all of the pagans, the ones who know nothing of Christ and could care less. This refers to the persecution from those who think themselves to be doing God's work, those who take the name of Christ falsely. Just as we must cast out the mindset, the attitude of slavery in ourselves, we must also expect that those who are still enslaved will hate us. What if they're not persecuting us right now? What if our lives are pretty comfortable and we're not being attacked? If they aren't persecuting you right now, the answer is not go out and provoke persecution. That's not the goal. People may hate you for your faith. They may also hate you because you're a jerk. If you're not being persecuted right now, the answer isn't to go looking for ways to prompt persecution. We never seek that out. Rather, instead, examine your own life to see if perhaps you, have, you haven't crucified your own slavish attitude, to see if perhaps they aren't persecuting you because you simply look exactly like them. Oh, sure, our rules may be different. We may have different laws that we're submitting to. But if we're living on the basis of a righteousness earned by keeping a set of rules, they got no reason to attack us because we then are they. And why would you attack yourself? So what then is the answer? What's our, what's our takeaway here? I think we have to end where Paul does in verse 31. Brothers, sisters, Christians, if you are in Christ, we are not the children of the slave, but of the free woman. Live as a free man, not enslaved to works righteousness, not earning whatever scraps you can from underneath God's table. Take your seat by his side as his son, for in Christ you are the son of of the promise. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have made us the children of the promise. That despite our constantly running back to works righteousness, constantly going back to try and earn position and favor from you, you give us your grace lavishly 
You pour out mercy on us that could never have been earned. You make us right with you by the work of another, by the death of another. We pray, Lord, fix our eyes on you. Let us live out today the grace, the mercy, the freedom that we have in Christ, that your name would be praised. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, please stand while we continue to worship.